Researchers have been challenged for years by the simultaneous results of numerous studies into brain network connections in individuals with autism spectrum disorder. Some studies have shown weaker connections, while others have shown stronger connections. New research has helped bring some clarity to this ongoing paradox. You're listening to ReachMD. I'm Paul Rakuski, your host. And with me today is Benjamin Uris, PhD, child psychologist in the Center for Autism Research at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Welcome, Dr. Uris. Hi, thanks, Paul. So if you could, tell us a little bit about your professional background. I am trained as a child psychologist, and I am a clinician, but in my training, I also received emphasis on using developmental cognitive neuroscience methods, which basically means that I like to study the development of both brain and behavior. And my focus has really been on thinking skills, attention, memory, problem solving. That's sort of been my career trajectory, sort of to try to wrap those things together, doing both clinical work and understanding sort of how brain and behavior develop. To sort of inform each other. So since your major area of study is the human brain, how would you see that the study of the human brain has changed over the past decade with regards to the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder? Well, how has it changed? I think it's changed uh, in a couple of ways. I think one of the most exciting changes that I've seen over the last decade has been that when people start thinking about the brain in autism, they sort of tried to identify a single brain region that was going to explain all of autism. So we had this early theory on the amygdala hypothesis of autism, and, and so that sort of atypical development and function of that one brain region was leading to all the symptoms of autism. And in more recent years, not just in the field of autism, but throughout neuroscience, we've really begun to focus much more on thinking about networks, knowing that each brain region doesn't work by just itself. It actually works with other brain regions together to sort of complete some kind of a task or a function, whether it's language or vision. And so now there's a really big emphasis on understanding how a brain region or a group of brain regions work together as a network and then how multiple networks work together. And so that has been a really interesting arc to sort of watch unfold in science over the last 10 years. It's just moving from a single brain region to knowing that, that a brain region makes up a network and now there's a lot of emphasis on how networks interact and work together. And that, I think, has just been very exciting. So we've seen a lot of brain studies show either weaker or stronger brain network connections with individuals diagnosed with ASD. How is this possible to see different results, and both are true? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of them are not exciting reasons, I would say. Some reasons have been related to artifact that can happen. If someone nods their head too much while they're sitting in an MRI, these differences will occur of some areas of the, of the brain looking like they're more connected or unconnected. And if you have one group, if you're scanning groups of a, of a clinical population and then a control group, and the control group doesn't move as much, then they will look like they have a difference in the brain activation patterns. And so that can sort of happen by just one group moving more than others. This can also, these sort of differences in results can also come about because of how people, scientists that is, how they can try to cope with that motion of people moving their head. What do they do statistically? And then there are other, you know, more interesting factors. One can be like differences in the age that you're looking at the IQ level of the people you're looking at, that those may play an interesting role because we know that the brain is not static. It's just developing across time. And so 
when you when you take a study at one time point, you're getting information at, at what those people are at that time point. But it's really important to understand how the brain changes across age. And so that's another interesting piece. And then one that I haven't mentioned yet is also just how you want to measure the connectivity of the brain. I think we've generally not appreciated how much that, that metric, that dependent variable, can really influence our results. And so that, that's been a topic that I've been interested in recently. So yeah, I was going to ask you about functional connectivity research. What exactly is that? So functional connectivity research is really trying to measure the relationship of multiple brain regions activity over time. So in the simplest format, you can just think of two brain regions. You can think of a long time ago, we identified two brain regions very important for language, Broca's area and Wernicke's. And one's important for speaking, one's important for understanding language. And you could just think about those two brain regions. If you want to understand their functional connectivity, you basically measure their activation over time, almost as if they're like synchronized swimmers. And the better synchrony that they have, we would say that they are more functionally connected because they're activating and deactivating together over time. That's really what the measure of functional connectivity research is, is you start from getting just two brain regions but you sort of looking at pairs of brain regions across the whole brain. And then we can sort of construct networks from that by seeing which brain regions have really high correlations with each other and then which ones have really low. And then we can start to build our brain networks from that. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm your host, Paul Rakuski, and I'm speaking with Dr. Benjamin Uris. We're talking about the brain paradox in individuals with autism spectrum disorder. So to follow on talking about functional connectivity research, you developed a test that employed using functional magnetic resonance imaging. Can you talk about that study design? So this was a study of about 160 children. Half of them had an autism spectrum disorder diagnosis and half of them did not. They were basically school age between 6 and 17 years. And we used a research-grade MRI, um, 3Tesla, and what the children had to do is they were in the MRI and they were looking at a plus sign for about six minutes. And while they were doing that, we were using a particular type of brain scan that measures the amount of oxygen in their blood. And then what happens is we sort of get a snapshot of the brain about every two seconds. And then what we do is we look to see how the activation of different brain regions changed over time in those six minutes, basically getting a measure every two seconds. We basically, like as I was mentioning earlier, we constructed brain networks based on a lot of research that has already been done showing that there are brain networks that are responsible for vision, for hearing, for motor movements, and for thinking, for processing emotion. And what we did is we looked at the brain patterns for the brain overall, and then also within those specific networks. We wanted to see were there differences between the two groups, and would those then also relate to the symptom severity that we see clinically in children with autism. So what were your findings on the study as it related to autism spectrum disorder? So what was really interesting about this study, you know, we were really intrigued by this um, inconsistency of some studies saying there's over-connectivity and some saying under-connectivity. And what we were interested in was we wanted to see why that was sort of happening. And, and in our earlier work, when we had reported that there was you know, elevated connectivity, we were using a form of a, of a measure of connectivity where we were sort of averaging out for the brain and then looking at sort of relative differences within the brain. 
I really wanted to take this step further to say, well, a lot of studies show that there's oftentimes less connectivity in people with autism. Is that because those studies aren't actually using a, an averaged or a normalized value in the, in, in the dependent variable? And so we sort of looked at overall strength, like how strong is this connection? So in that first step, we looked at that between the two groups, the children with autism and then the children that were having typical development. And we found that overall, the connections were generally weaker in children with autism. But when we started to look, well, once you control for the fact that they have weaker connections overall, we started to say, well, within that, do they have differences in their in specific networks that you might expect in autism? And that's actually what we found. What we found was that areas of the brain that are often involved in either motor or attention, attention to like, you know, things in your environment, so like just orienting, and most of the time we're particularly when we're young, we're orienting to things that are social in nature, but things that we orient to, areas of the brain that help us process social and emotional information, we found that those areas of the brain actually were had a stronger connection once you sort of controlled for that general difference between the two groups. I know that's a, it's sort of a difficult concept to, to try to convey, but the idea is that, you know, if I have a, a correlation or a mean correlation of 0.5 and somebody else has a mean correlation of 0.3, well, if we have one network that has a mean correlation of 0.4, for me, that's below my, my, my general connectivity in my brain. But for somebody else with a, a mean correlation in their brain of 0.3, that 0.4 is actually higher. And so, so overall, we found that there was this group difference of them being lower than being a group of children with autism, that their connectivity was lower as a group. But once you sort of took out that difference, you actually saw that there was an increase in the connectivity patterns sort of suggesting that there was greater connectivity within a network and some differences maybe going across networks, that they weren't sort of talking as efficiently with each other. Well, I think the research brings a lot of clarity to the issue because you are seeing almost diametrically opposed results in studies that one said of higher connectivity, the other said lower. This gives a better explanation as to why that could be true and that it, it could be true in the same person, that you see higher connectivity issues in certain parts of the network versus lower in others, depending on, you know, where the person's brain development is at. Yeah. And, and, and really, I think what was striking to me was, you know, how you wanted to measure that. So if you wanted to look at absolute strength, that was very different than wanting to look at what's the general pattern within my brain. And, and that was something that we were really interested in because too many times, a lot of our studies will end you know, where we can't sort of integrate all the findings that someone else has done, either on one brain network or multiple brain networks. And we oftentimes will chalk it up to, well, there's a lot of variability in kids with autism. You know, maybe it's these subtle differences. And, and, and I know that I've said that as well. And, and that may be true, but sometimes we also have to take a step back and look at, well, what are we doing as scientists? You know, and, and, you know, we have to be sure that we're being careful with everything we're measuring and know that we're really comparing apples to apples. And, and in this case, I think we found that we were actually comparing apples and oranges. But when we started looking at that a little more carefully, then, then we could start to make sense of this pattern, understanding that it was really about some of the decisions that the scientists were making, and maybe not as much about um, true differences that we would see in the brain. And that was really helpful because it made us more aware of the choices that we're making. And then it also makes us much more careful about the inferences we make from that data. 
one of the things that you mentioned was the kind of the the ever evolution of the of the human brain and how it's always changing. And one of the more interesting talks I heard a few years ago was the the neurochemistry of the teenage brain. Mm-hmm. So do do you see these connections changing more so over time, like during puberty, than you have in adulthood or in younger times because of the the change happening during that time, the rapid change that happens in the human body? Absolutely. I think that's a, a great point that you bring up. I do think those things are making a huge difference. I don't believe we have yet seen a definitive study in autism where we've looked at changes in adolescent neurochemistry, really trying to measure that in terms of changes of testosterone or estrogen. I think we've sort of looked at changes just using age as an assessment, you know, as a way of just sort of correlating. But I think there is a lot of really exciting methods out there that people can sort of bring into the field of autism that would really help us to answer some important questions, some of the ones that you're bringing up right now. Well, Dr. Yoris, thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. My thanks again to my guest, Benjamin Yuris, PhD, child psychologist in the Center for Autism Research at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. We've been discussing autism spectrum disorder. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring podcasts of this and other series. I've been your host, Paul Rakuski, and thank you for listening.